This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. It is, of course, National Indigenous Peoples Day, and we are very pleased to have with us right now someone who is a First Nation, raised in London, Indigenous roots in Oneida Nations, originally born in Calgary, Alberta, and she is going to be able to tell her story. What were we just talking about a half hour ago? We need more story. We need to find out more just about each other. And this gives us an opportunity to do that. Please welcome Amanda Kennedy to London Live. Amanda, how's your day going? It's a goalie, thank you. It's going good, going good. Good to hear. We use the word conversation a lot, and the hope is through conversations we can we learn. And from learning, we can identify things that maybe need to be changed. Can you take us through your story, even kind of back to when you were very young, starting school, and some of the things that you faced? Yes. Uh, well, even like my first day of school and attending, going to a non-Indigenous school, because I did go to an Indian day school before. I was on Oneida attending an Indian day school, and then we moved to London so I attended my first non-Indigenous school, Thames Valley District School. And that first experience, like, I came home knowing, like, asking, what is a dirty Indian? Like, why are we savages? Like, why are we waste of time? Like, why are my people drunks? Like, it was just, I knew I had all this negative talk about um, First Nations people. And it was because I was being introduced to that, because I was being called down. I was being abused. I was being attacked for being an Indigenous child. And so that experience coming home and talking to my dad and saying, like, this is what they're saying to me. And then having that conversation with them and saying, okay, well, you know, this this is where it's like pretty much being Indigenous at times. This is what it's like being Native. We, we have to fight. We have to learn to fight for ourselves. We can either be very silent, but if we're silent, we might get attacked more or we're going to have to fight. Either way, we're just going to have to fight because we live in a world that, you know, does not like our people. And sadly, people are going to attack you because of who you are, because you are a Native person, you're going to be attacked. So, again, six years old, learning this and having to accept that and then making a decision if I was whether going to stay silent or whether I was going to stick up for myself, you know, then I made that decision and I just I chose to stick up for myself and, and to find my voice and use my voice. But, yeah, it's been a battle ever since then. Do you remember what you felt like when your dad said to you, we're going to have to fight. You're going to have to fight. You're going to, you're going to have to stand up for yourself. Do you remember what that felt like to hear? It felt awful because I, I'm a really sensitive person and I'm really, I'm always helper. I'm a very caregiver, caring person. So even at that age, like it hurt my, it hurt me to be treated that way. And I would never treat somebody that way. I would never call somebody down. I would never want to physically hurt somebody. So to hear my dad telling me like, okay, you you have to fight to protect yourself. I thought, okay, no, I don't want to fight. But then I have two younger brothers that are about to come to school just after me because we're close in age. And that's where he was reminding me, like, well, I have two brothers, too. And what is it going to be for them? So I realized it wasn't just me that I was fighting for. It was them they were I was fighting for as well, too. So it was, 
it was a hard, it was sad. Every time I did get in a fight, every time I had to call somebody out, even to this day, it it feels sad. It's not an, it's not a good experience. It's not something I enjoy doing, but sadly it's, it's a way I had to protect myself. We're talking with Amanda Kennedy and Amanda, you just used the word fight. So you got in physical fights. Yes. (laughs) Too many. (laughs) Yeah. And, what would what would kind of start that and 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 how would that make you feel again it's just i'm a very kind person i'm a very helpful person and i you know i don't go around hurting people so everywhere i go i I come in there with a good mind and a good heart and and then to be treated mistreated badly for something and to be treated really badly or physically attacked or emotionally or verbally attacked it's it's hard and it's a, it's a really awful experience. And again, so being a fighter and, and being an advocate and always having people to stand up for, I became an advocate at a young age as well too. So it's like, I had no choice but to use my voice, but the experiences, it's just, it's just awful experiences. And I, I never walked into any, I never, ever started a fight. I've never, ever attacked a person, but I've always defended myself and I've always made sure that I defended my, my family and, and my, and my peers that were being attacked as well, too. I fought along with my peers as we protected our community. We protected ourselves. And, again, we never looked for a fight. We never wanted to fight, even going to different programs and when we were youth. We wanted to go there and learn. We wanted to find something different to do. We wanted to get away from what was happening in our communities. And yet, as soon as we stepped into these spaces, we were attacked by adults, by the youth, by the parents. And then they called the police, and then we were attacked by the police. And it was just awful so it's like everywhere we went we were always attacked and it was never because we were going in that space being mean or rude or disrespectful it was because we stepped in there and we were indigenous people so therefore we had a target on our back and because of the way that people were educated to look at indigenous people and treat indigenous people we constant had to fight everywhere we went amanda kennedy joining us amanda was born in calgary and raised in london has roots in oneida nation and had moved, as Amanda said, to a neighborhood in London and started to have to, as Amanda has outlined, fight for herself, fight for her brothers, fight for her family. And you mentioned using your voice at a young age. We might think of a young age as 18, 20, 25. Those are still young voices. How old were you when you found, no, no, I'm, I'm going to use my voice. I'm, I'm going to speak up for what I see that isn't right. I was nine years old. It was when I moved to Manor Park. I was nine years old. I was already using my voice and sticking up for me and my brothers when I was living in a different neighborhood. And then we moved to another area, the West End of London. And it was nine years old where I met my peers. And I became a, a part of a community where we were part of a co-op where there was a lot of um, low-income Indigenous families in this neighborhood. So then I found my peers and then started sticking up for them and started advocating for them as well, too, because I already had the experience from sticking up for myself and my brothers that everyone kind of, I became that person that supported people. So at nine years old is when I just started advocating, and I'm, I'm 39 today. I've been doing it for 30 years. And what would you do at nine years old to advocate for people who needed that voice when when someone would mistreat us i would i would go out and call the person and ask them like why they are mistreating us and a lot of times you know pretty much educating them and letting them know like this is wrong what they were doing that 
You know, we were, we're, we're, if we're students that we're here to learn, we're here to get an education. We shouldn't be abused. We shouldn't be attacked because of who we are. And I would just call it out and, and bring it out to, and not, and not, I pretend like it wasn't happening. And if they pretend like it wasn't happening, I bring it up again. I would take the principal. I would go home to my dad. And my dad, my parents always supported me. My parents always had my back too. And they were the same way. So they wouldn't listen to me. And if I couldn't bring it out, and then I had, or if it was adults and I was struggling with getting them to listen to me, then I would go home and tell my parents. And my parents would be at the school or be wherever they needed to be the next day supporting me and, and speaking up for, and advocating for me. So I got to um, witness and learn and watch them advocate for myself, which just became a stronger advocate. And we're talking about 30 years ago, so very early 1990s, when you would go and, and try and educate someone, try and say, hey, wait a minute, that's, you know, what what you're saying, that's not right. We still talk about microaggressions today and how we need to speak up about these things. What would be the reaction that would you get that you would get? Would you have people saying, "Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't realize," or would they get defensive, or was it a mix? What would you encounter? Majority of the time, most of the time, it was defensive. They got defensive and instantly angry, and then that's where the physical attacks came from. Most of the time, a lot of times it was just. You know, words, talking, and, and trying to discuss it, and speaking like this. Never did I yell or scream. I, I learned to speak just like this when I and keep myself grounded. So it was speaking, and then they would get aggressive, and then that's when the physical attacks would come, or they would either try to call the police, or they would make a big issue out of it because, and they would never admit to it. They would never just say, "Okay, you know what? Let's just talk about this," or "Yes, I'm sorry, I made a mistake," or. Wow, I didn't realize I was doing that. It was never, I never got that response. If anything, it was a fight. And so I was always uncomfortable because even when someone would come to me and say, oh, this happened to me, I'm like, oh, this isn't going to be comfortable because this isn't, I know I'm going to go into this situation and speak up. And I know this person is not going to like it. And they're either going to want to yell at me and scream at me and call me down, or they're going to physically attack me. So I always knew that I'm walking into that space and calling people out that it was never going to be a, a pleasant um, experience that was always going to be hard but again I was I was taught to be a fighter at a young age I, I chose that I made that decision and so I always stepped into that space and I fought every time we're talking with Amanda Kennedy Amanda is a First Nation raised in London and we're going back through some of the things that Amanda has done in her life has faced in her life Amanda I don't know where you find the strength to tell you the truth because if most of us did that the first time and someone challenged us right back, I think I think we'd just turn away and say, well, this must be the way that it is. What kept you going? I mean, you're talking about having to do this again and again and again. And this, this wouldn't, you know, this would develop into other things that, that would get even bigger as you got older. But you kept going again and again and again. What is it that gives you that strength? One one thing, I'm Bear Clan, uh, and a Bear Clan, you know, they're a fighter like that mama bear. And I, again, <laughs> when my brothers were born, I was two when my first brother was born. So even my mom said right away, I'm like, oh, these are my, my children. <laughs> these mine to protect. So I was kind of like that mama bear right off the hop. So growing up, I was always that protector, always that nurture, always protecting them, educating them, trying to help build them up. And I've been doing it since my brothers, since I was two years old with my brothers. So just growing older, I continue to do that more with more people. 
And as a youth, like I said, when I grew, grew um, moved to Manor at nine, I became that uh, advocate. I became that support. And I did the same thing. I became that mama bear to everyone in my community. And then as I became an older youth, people started seeing, well, you know, the work that I was doing and how um, effective I was with working with community. They started asking me to take lead in other things with um, being a youth, like work conferences or youth um, workshops or camps and all of that stuff and take lead on a lot of that. So I would, I would take a lead on all of that and just, that really, yeah, and then I'd same thing, like, whenever I work and do my work, like, it's, I have that mama bear, I have that, that nurturing in there, and my heart, my passion, it's just, it's just who I am, it's, creator made me, and I found my passion at a young age, I found my voice at a young age, I found my purpose at a young age, and I'm blessed, and I, I've been able to nurture that, and, and had my, my ancestors help me nurture that, my parents, and my community members and just the learning experiences and just helped me grow into the what the work that I do today and the social enterprises that I have and now working with many different communities, many people and just supporting them and protecting them, sticking up with them, advocating. This is what I've been doing as nine. I've just been growing those skills and growing businesses as I've been growing them. Amanda, confronting the hate, confronting the stereotypes, confronting what you have had to face does it ever get easier no no like even i think it was a month and a half ago i had a a, a racist experience in a zoom classroom with western and i was sticking up for another indigenous youth and was being attacked and I got sick right after that i was sick and it just goes to show in, in 2021 where i'm still having these battles and it never gets easier it's still hard sometimes it's very emotional and sometimes it takes so much energy I mean I get sick and I got to do a lot of self-care and take care of my mental health but it it doesn't get easier yet but one thing is is there's a lot of spaces opening up now like this where people are creating space for me to speak my truth and so that is it's getting more support and seeing more allies and people wanting to learn and people wanting to hear this truth even though it's hard it, that's making it easier, knowing that there's more support growing out there, more allies and more people becoming aware. It's making it easier to fight this fight now because I'm not fighting it alone. And I see so many other people fighting it or either creating this space for people like me, advocates, activists, or educators to step into this space to, to use our voice to continue bringing this awareness and fighting for ourselves and our people and our communities. Amanda, you're an amazing amazing person thank you for being who you are thank you for deciding that young age that no this is not right because that kind of strength that doesn't exist in very many people and it exists in you may that support continue to grow i know you'll be talking with jess brady later on about some of the things that you have coming up that will aim to make a big difference in this world but thanks for spending some time with us today young girl young girl thank you take care you too thank you young girl that's Amanda Kennedy. Amanda, raised in London, and at a very young age, went home and said to her dad, why are people saying these things? Why are people at school saying these things to me? And her dad said, we've got to fight. We've got to fight, and people are going to say things to you, and they're going to be hurtful things, and we've got to fight against them. And that's what she's been doing now for, as Amanda says, she's 39, That would be for 34 years, but has been speaking out 
for 30 years and continues to be a major influence to make us all better. This is National Indigenous Peoples Day, and we have an opportunity right now to talk with someone who has been a journalist for a long, long time and is now someone who has really dedicated a lot of time to telling stories that otherwise have not been told. And we get an opportunity to look at maybe why that is, what stories are being told, and how things might change to make these stories more easily told in the future. Joining us right now is the CEO of Stories First, Lena Minifee. Lena, great to talk with you. Maybe we can begin just by discussing the stories that you are telling through Stories First. I would say the stories I'm focusing on primarily kind of reflect um, IBPOC or BIPOC or Indigenous joy, resilience, and exuberance. Uh, I like to lean into where our, our, our places of joy and happiness and how we've thrived and survived to this place. I'm looking for stories that resonate and will make um, some sort of, move the needle in some sort of way uh, in upcoming years. They're not just like a, a fast and trendy story that'll be done in like a year or two, but they're things that will last for a really long time. So longevity there is really important to me. Um, impact, so they make impact in communities in a meaningful way, whether it be about social issues or um, learning about new things or history or amplifying voices that haven't been heard before. So those are the things that are, are most crucial to me right now um, and to Stories versus a Company. A lot of our news, a lot of our stories can be reactionary because you hear something. If you are talking with voices and seeking out voices and finding voices who have not been heard before, how are you finding them? That's a good question. Um, I, I feel like I'm a bit, I, I'm super lucky, but I've also been a bit planned in this way where I, I surround myself, I think, with people who have the same values and the same um, beliefs and, and angles uh, about wanting to um, change the narrative and change stories um, and also offer truthful stories, of course, but from a different lens, either a multi-narrative, pluralistic lens, either from a very communal or cultural perspective, things that haven't been re represented in the mainstream or um, what you consider to be sort of this like centralized sort of white male concept that's we've all constructed as, as this mainstream lens in media. Um, so I'm finding them through connecting with people. Um, I try to absorb and read as much as I possibly can from up and coming and emerging authors. I'm trying to uh, connect with people who are outside of, you know, my culture, but I'm, I'm that we share similar experiences and history with or ex societal experiences with. Um, and I'm, I'm always opening my mind in that way. Lena Minifu joining us, CEO of Stories First. We were kind of looking last week and we were talking with Kathleen Newman Bramang. And one of the things that she was mentioning was that in this past year, yes, there's been a lot of conversation, but if we're looking at media or we're looking at you know content being created for whether it's film or TV or, or video of some kind, that there's a lot of performance where now 
you're making sure that yes, there is diversity in the cast, but is there is there any kind of diversity outside of that cast, and that that is an issue? Is that something that you're also concerned about? Yeah, I. It's interesting. Like I did, and I'm kind of this person, sort of like sort of liaisons between industries. I'm a digital strategist, work in media about how to get media out there and film marketing. I am producing film. I've been a journalist and so sort of going about it in that way and at, and the co-founder of Ricochet Media and, and starting organizations or changing them. So I do a lot of change making, but um, I would say that every single production that I've worked on and helped out has been like over around 70% or, or over indigenous crew at, or BIPOC crew. Um, and that's something that I do. Like I, I, only kind of really lean into projects that I can control that <laughs> or be able to influence that in some way. Um, and I feel like that's part of my brand and mark uh, is, is making sure that that amplifies. Not every, I have to say this, like there's a lot of um, uh, diverse directors who don't, or diverse producers that don't, haven't been able to necessarily look at that until, and had no impetus or no support until now. There's a lot, of, I'd say there's like a ton of directors who just hire all, um, uh, white crew and those like technically available to them in the last 20 years or 30 years um, because we didn't have all those positions that were trained but we really have every single position represented in our communities now and there's there's no excuse for not um, doing hires that are from our communities and prioritizing those because every there's so many people who've um, worked now in the industry and, and are and have skills amazing skills so there is a difference between setting up your crew and then the people in front of the camera, but there's a difference between above the line too. And so Indigenous Screen Office and Imagine has really been pushing for Indigenous film to kind of have above the line, having two out of the three, so that's writer, director, producer, having two out of the three be uh, Indigenous. And Black Screen Office is, I'm sure, going to push for the same for Black film. But the way the financing system is that you haven't made a $10 million film before that you're not allowed to make a $10 million film. before. So if your resume doesn't match up, so these emerging people who are becoming producers or directors, if they haven't done a certain budget or above, they're not trusted by the broadcasters, the funders, the streamers to have done that because you've never done it before. So then a rock and hard place. So that's when you kind of get executive producers to come in. And so executive producers don't necessarily control everything on series, um, they have a bit more say, but executive producers can be people who are funding or supervising or overseeing to give the project that credit um, in order for the product to happen. So there can be just like mentorships and people putting their name on it in order to advance the project. And so if your writer and director and producer are from that community, executive producers don't necessarily, I don't, I don't think they have to be because they are the ones who might have that $10 million uh, history of doing that film or $20 million um, and have been trusted with that before. And so they give your project legitimacy. So um, so in some ways, like it's it's complicated, <laughs> but unless you attach that person, it's just like with a startup company, unless you attach a person that's your mentor or supervisor who can give you that credit and sort of be able to, um, to, to tell investors and stuff, no, they're secure, they've handled this kind of money before and this kind of risk. Um, it, it's tough to uh, to fill that, and a lot of our like people in our community aren't sitting around with bank like to make. They don't have extra, ten, you know, millions of dollars to to give the film. So. so you mentioned before the idea that we have seen a lot of content created because of grants. A lot of 
a lot of programming in Canada has been created that way. Do we need to get away from that somehow? Or can that be there? And can we add another element that would prevent somebody from kind of having to find someone who's made an enormous project before to give it that credit? I I feel like a lot of the filmmakers in the history of Canada have found creative ways to put their projects together. Some, uh, I mean, the CMF report that just came out, not only it was stating that, you know, um, uh, women of color specifically make like 30,000 to $50,000, which is way less than, than um, uh, mainstream or Caucasian uh, producers. But um, it was also saying that they tend to fund like 50% of the projects that are out there done by, by people of color and or indigenous are, and racialized are actually funding their films outside of the grant system. So they're actually putting together because they have lower budgets. They're trying to cobble together things that are outside of the standard, uh, the standard like telephone or CMF or, or these broadcasting funds. And they're trying to make films on their own that can be put on the internet or short films or, or things to be done at that level. And they're trying to just find any way of doing it. So I, I wanna commend people who are like really innovative and they really do wanna be in this industry, but it's getting past that point that that's where the gatekeepers kind of decide, well, you're now you're right for the next level. Um, so, so yes, we've all like people, filmmakers are always privately funded somehow uh, if they have, but look, a lot of marginalized people don't have those rich people in their family, right? They're not hanging out and um, able to donate in the same way. But, uh, you know, in the States, I find that a lot of people have access to angel investors, even people who are marginalized, they just have access to people with a lot more money, because there's a lot more money down there. There's like a ton of money in people who want to invest, they like the idea of film. There's a lot more philanthropy built into the country. Canada doesn't have philanthropy because we have social, this, you know, socialized granting system that we're like, no, we have that, so we don't have to give money. But there's a mixture of trying to make Canada more philanthropic, as well as um, maybe having some foundations who understand the, that media can move the needle and that media matters and you can make changes. I think that if we had a few foundations that were doing that work and we're starting to see that, it's like in Spirit Foundation and um, some of TELUS's grants, but, uh, and, you know, and Rogers, but there's, there, there has to be a bit more, I think, foundational support and, um, and structure that's sort of outside of that. Lena Minfi joining us, CEO of Stories First. Lena, one final thing, and that is if we look at, at where things sit right now compared to some of the other times that you have been working, do you feel optimistic? Do you still feel like you have to fight a lot of things? What are you feeling? I feel like there's this moment that there's a reckoning right now that's happening within institutions who are making huge efforts to sort of commodify and sort through data and actually look through the numbers of like how we supported female um, or a female or woman identifying directors and producers, how we supported racialized and indigenous directors and producers and writers. And they're actually starting to make tally systems and um, starting to make these checklists. And I, you know, you could be skeptical sometimes of checklists because they're just like, something that institution has to do in order to fulfill its um, uh, obligation or objectives or goals. But I feel like everyone is doing it at the same time during COVID. And I think that when we come out of this, I think that um, those checklists actually can manifest into to, to substantial change, at least for like 
looking at the numbers and who they're supporting and how much they're supporting them. But I think that the on the other side of that, the social move, the movement and people's minds changing and their hearts opening to other people's stories and other people's perspectives and views and wanting to learn more about people who are not them. I think that we're at a crucial place there that we've never been before too. So I think both those things uh, accumulating gives me a lot of hope. Um, you know, like Digstown doing really great, Kim's Convenience. I know there's a lot, there's a lot of talk about that right now, but it did really well. Um, the, and there's, there's, there's things that are happening um, that they can prove that there's an audience for this, there's a need for this, there's a want and desire. And that giving that opportunity because they could just say no before. <laughs> they could just be like, nobody's interested in that. And you're like, give me the data. They're like, we don't have the data. We just know. <laughs> nobody wants to see brown faces and nobody wants to see brown faces and brown stories. And so that was just like a, an assumption that they had to make. Um, and now we can show actually, you know, there's amazing blockbuster films as well as uh, Indian art house films, as well as TV shows or web series that are doing really great. And you can say, hey, the data is there. It's distributed online. We've had disruption now for the film marketing, which is the first time ever during COVID. You can actually see numbers and nobody can kind of deny those numbers too. So, so I think both things are there. And that's, that's just it. Alan Cross always points back to the record industry. And in the early 90s, something changed where instead of somebody calling around to record shops and saying, hey, what's uh, what's selling well? It was, no, we actually have a barcode now and it's on a CD. And when somebody buys that barcode, it goes in and it gets counted. And they started realizing, hey, uh, what we thought was selling is not what's actually selling and everything changed. Maybe we're there in a different part of our world right now. I think so. I think film and theatrical are like kind of the last things to face digital disruption and sort of um, and and moving towards data and and online and now yeah now we can see the numbers and now we can see people's excitement and what they share and what they're what they're hoping to see what they're wanting to watch come out and and how they feel about watching something. Well. We need the stories. You're providing those. Please continue to do that. Lena, thank you so much for taking some time for us today. Thank you so much, Mike. Thanks for having me. Lena Minifee, CEO of Stories First. So the demand has always been there, but you have to get through somebody saying, oh, no, 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 no. That's, that's not what people want. Well, show me the data. Canada's Cyber Spy Agency. Wait a minute. What are you talking about, Canada's Cyber Spy Agency? Canada doesn't have a cyber spy agency. What, what is this? Some book? What is, what is this? The latest from Len Dayton? What is this? An old Robert Ludlum manuscript? What are you talking about, cyber spy agency? Okay, well, we're going to talk about Canada's Cyber Spy Agency because apparently it's a thing. And I also want to look at it in in this way let's say that somebody knocked on your door this weekend and while keeping socially distant they said hey we're looking for the butlers and you say oh the butlers yeah uh they live four houses down and the person would instantly say okay great 
see you later. And you stop them and you say, well, actually, before you go, you know, the butlers have two children named Cindy and Bobby and their combined income is $108,425 and they're usually away shopping for groceries every Saturday between 10.30 in the morning and 11.30 in the morning. The person asking where the butlers live would probably look at you and say, "What? why are you giving me all this information? I don't need all that information. Well, what if that was happening on maybe a, a different level, on a level that was giving out some of your information, more information than maybe you, you needed to have given out? And what if it was being done by something called Canada's Cyber Spy Agency? Sounds like a conundrum for our good friend Dr. Thomas Cook, Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada postdoctoral fellow at the Surveillance Study Center at Queen's University. Dr. Cook, I presume? That's correct. That is me. Hello, Mike. How are you? Well, I'm baffled, first off, that we have a cyber spy agency. Uh, that is a thing, though, right? Evidently. <laughs> Some people call it CSEC, but yes. <laughs> okay. So it's, but it's different than CSIS, but it's CSECT, you said it was? CSEC, yes. CSEC, okay. Yep. Gotcha. Okay. What is, what is this organization designed to do? Because I, I don't want us picturing James Bond skiing down a hill and having helicopters shoot out of his coat. Uh, what, what is this largely doing? Uh, CSEC's a little bit different than other branches of the government. So the, the way that CSEC kind of established itself is that they're the kind of frontline defense for um, providing cryptography, for making sure that other uh, countries, other malicious actors, hackers can't actually steal protected data in Canada. So one way of thinking about it might be to consider like the way we have the CBSA, the border guards, this is kind of our online border protection agency. Okay, excellent. So why have they kind of hit the headlines over the last week or so, and once again on the weekend? Uh, so they're traditionally supposed to be protecting documents that pertain to um, personal information, sensitive data about the population. But um, the National Security and Intelligence Review Agency, I think, recently looked at something like over 2,350 some odd disclosure, disclosures of personal information about Canadians over a five-year period. Um, and, and something like 99% of the requests that the CSE was involved in um, ended up becoming public or something to that effect. To be honest with you, I'm still trying to work through the details because I find it a bit confusing that how this organization becomes situated in the middle of disclosing sensitive data when they're supposed to be protecting it is, is, is quite a conundrum. Yeah, no doubt. So protect the information, but here's some information. So in other words, in, in accessing information for who knows what, it seems that extra dribbles of info about people have gone along with it. Is that what seems to have happened here? Yeah, it, it seems that the review has, has sort of found that of the data that, the, that CSEC had disclosed, um, Canadians' names and other personal information, um, even when the recipient of, of those disclosures. So it, it seems that the CSA had been providing this information to organizations that had asked for it. Even when they, they didn't ask for specific things, they were getting a lot more information than they should have. So it, it seems to me that there there's a, an absence of an internal practice for a check and balance system 
that should have stopped this. Maybe maybe it's the case that there was too much liberty in in responding to specific requests for for certain kinds of information between agencies, but. At the very least, um, it has been found that this organization needs to tighten up how they disclose information about Canadians. We're talking with Dr. Thomas Cook, Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada, postdoctoral fellow at the Surveillance Studies Centre at Queen's University. And we're looking at Canada's spy agency, which we now have discovered, if you didn't know and you may have already, is CSEC. And what they have done is apparently let added information about Canadians that was being accessed, get out there to a point that a lot of Canadians might not have realized. Now, hey, if somebody is giving out, you know, my name, my height, my weight, I I don't really care, and I, I suppose you'll tell me that's dangerous not to care, <laughs> but it, it depends on what the information is, you know. If if they're not giving out major information, how how could we look at this to figure out whether or not this is actually big scale or this is just like the rest mm-hmm. of us learning more about mm-hmm. how vaccines are approved or all of the other little tidbits about science that we uh, paid attention to in the last year. Yeah, th- this is a good way of thinking about it. How, how do we move forward from here? What, what can we ascertain in terms of potential implications? So I think the, the short way of answering your question, Mike, and it's a great one, is that we're not going to know. <laughs> Unfortunately, I mean, it, what, what's been going on here uh, at the heart of the issue is that CSE, the way the media has been labeling it, I understood it as CSEC, regardless, I digress. They've been sharing information with other surveillance and policing agencies in Canada. So we're talking about CSIS, the one that you mentioned at the, begin, the beginning of the call, Mike, so Canadian Security Intelligence Service, but also with the RCMP and the CBSA, so the Border Services Agency as well. So these organizations are sharing information with one another, but CSE had done so in a way that really, really concerned how and whether it's it's respecting Canada's Privacy Act. So the content of what's shared between those agencies is nothing we're ever going to find. I don't know what that's going to be. It could be if you've been profiled by the RCMP for um, being a suspect in a crime, if you are considered a dissident, maybe you are in a community with people that have been labeled as, um, I don't know, that are, are, are too close to terrorists or criminal networks, your name could show up. So I, I don't know. The nature and the extent to which certain information is being shared is nothing we're going to find out. However, 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 we also keep in mind here the findings of the Federal Privacy Commission recently, who declared, I'm sure many of you saw this uh, not all that long ago, I think on June 10th, that Daniel Therrien in, in Ottawa had concluded that the RCMP had had violated the privacy, had broken the law by using Clearview AI. Clearview AI is a system made in the United States that basically scrapes billions of photos, public-facing photos online puts them into a centralized database and then uses fake facial recognition to allow policing and surveillance agencies to to go and, and look at that data to see if they can, you know, pin together suspects to do surveillance to track certain people. And, and this was a massive breach of, of the Privacy Act precisely because in Canada, organizations are not allowed to use third-party services that have not proven that the way in which they're using data is legal. 
and the RCMP argued ANSYS and said they did everything that they could, and it turned out to be a bunch of baloney, of course. So when we see this kind of issue happening just recently as well, right on the heels of this issue at the CSE, it makes me wonder if potentially what's happened here is some of what the RCMP had done with Clearview AI was so implicating that the information that they ascertained was shared laterally, or maybe these other organizations continue to be involved in in the usages of technologies that are not legal in Canada, and now our privacy watchdogs are really starting to pay attention to this. So I, I think that what happened recently with the RCMP and Clearview AI and the excellently detailed response from the privacy commissioner at the federal level has really triggered um, a deeper look at how our surveillance and policing agencies in Canada are sharing information in a way that might actually harm its own population, Mike. Isn't that wild? Well, this is definitely a story to keep tabs on. Clearview AI is certainly one that has popped up in in recent weeks. Maybe we can document that in the coming weeks. But, Dr. Cook, thank you for bringing us up to date on what this is, what it means, and uh, why we should at least be uh, watching it. It's good to watch the watchers. It's an important thing to do. (laughs) Well said. You You have a great week. Yeah, you too, Mike. Take care. Bye-bye. That is Dr. Thomas Cook, Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada Postdoctoral Fellow at the Surveillance Studies Centre at Queen's University. You've been listening to the London Live Podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.